Well, thank you so much to the worship team. Thank you to everybody who came here this afternoon. If you guys had a friend from out of town, if you guys had a friend from another country, and your purpose was to show them or teach them what it meant to be American, if they were interested in learning about that, there would be no better place that you could take them than to the Smithsonian Museums in Washington, D.C. And as you toured through those multiple buildings, uh, and kind of viewed and contemplated how each of those items contributed to our national identity. Some of the most popular th- displays are things like Ben Franklin's walking stick and wagons that settlers used to go westward on the Oregon Trail and airplanes actually piloted by Charles Lindbergh or Amelia Earhart. You can see a shawl that was owned and worn by Harriet Tubman. You can see one of the actual space shuttles. And as you look at these historically significant objects, your mind grasps new insights about the dates and the geography and the historical background of this country. But of course, even if somebody could memorize all the dates and the key battles and the elections and the topography that dominate American history books, like they would still not have a full understanding of what it means to be American. And that's why when you tour through the various Smithsonian museums, they also include whimsical items like the ruby slippers that Dorothy wore in The Wizard of Oz, the original Kermit the Frog puppet, the puffy shirt from Seinfeld, and the ink pens that Charles Schultz used to draw Snoopy and Charlie Brown in the Peanuts cartoons. Now, you could probably make a persuasive case that the space shuttle is more historically significant than Dorothy's slippers, right? But if your overall purpose is to learn about what it means to be American, you'd have to agree that the items from both list number one and list number two are both significant. And I start with that because this is true of the Bible as well. As we try to learn what it means to be God's people... We often focus on the dates and the battles and the geography and the people. But what I'd like to challenge us with today is that the Bible also includes things that we're supposed to view more like the whimsical pop culture items from that second list. Today we start a four-week study of the book of Jonah, and what I would like to present to you is that Jonah is a comedy. The book of Jonah is unlike any other story in the Bible, and Christians argue over whether the creature was a fish or a whale, and Christians argue over whether we're supposed to believe that the events happened or did not happen. But what gets overlooked in all of those discussions is all that we are supposed to learn about God through this satirical Story. So what I'd like to do today is just an introduction, and we'll talk about the story in the specifics a little bit more in future weeks. But let's break it down into three parts as we launch into this introduction. In section one, let's just talk about the story itself, because the story as we know it leaves out a lot of parts that are actually in the original telling. Section two, let's talk about how we can know that this story is supposed to be viewed a little bit differently than some of the other stories in the Bible. How we can see that it is clearly telling us that there's elements of satire and humor in this book. And then let's wrap up in section three with the so what. Like, why is it 
in the Bible? And what are the key themes that we're supposed to draw from this story? I'll make a deal with you guys. Uh, I won't pretend like you know every single detail from this story, uh, so you don't have to pretend like you know everything about it. Uh, the deal will go like this. I'll, for just four or five minutes, I'll just give us all a quick summary of what is in this story so that as we talk about it, uh, we'll all kind of be on the same page. And then your part of the deal is I want you to go home and read this very short four-chapter story sometime this week. So the next three weeks, you, are, you all know exactly what uh, interesting details this story is full of. So let's talk about the story of Jonah. Quick summary. Chapter 1. There's this man named Jonah, and it tells us in the very first verse of the very first chapter that he's told to confront Israel's enemy because of their wickedness. That's the very first verse of the story. Then it tells us in the third sentence of the story that the man immediately responds by sailing to the farthest known port in the world at that time. We don't know exactly where Tarshish is, uh, but most Scholars think that it was probably in Spain. So if you think about the Mediterranean and you think about where, where Spain is, it's like the farthest possible place that sailors could go. And that's Jonah's response to what God has asked him to do. In verse 4, it tells us that God sends a storm to get this reluctant prophet's attention. In verse 14, it tells us that the Gentile, the non-Jewish sailors, these pagans that don't know anything about God, they're telling Jonah that he should repent and he should apologize to God and he won't do it, so they do. In verses 12 and 15 of chapter 1, we learn that Jonah would rather die than repent to God. In chapter 2, it tells us that God sends a generic sea creature to swallow Jonah they didn't know a lot about marine biology 3,000 years ago in Israel, so the word that's used is just a word that means sea creature. And I don't mean like the Loch Ness Monster sea creature. It just means like an animal that lives in the ocean because they didn't have words for killer whale and porpoise and all those things because they were a largely landlocked people and they didn't have an understanding of the taxonomy of, uh, of sea creatures at that time. So it's just this creature that God sends, according to the original Hebrew. And uh, Jonah sits in this creature for three days. He comes up with a really stirring speech to God, which we'll talk about in future weeks. But even in that beautifully stirring speech, he never actually says that he's sorry. He, he asks for help, but he never actually says he's sorry. In verse 11, God commands the fish to spit Jonah out onto the Assyrian shoreline. Let me move to chapter 3. Chapter 3 and verse 3, Jonah walks through this Assyrian capital of Nineveh. The, the, the narrator gives us the measurements, and the measurements that are given to us would actually exceed modern-day Los Angeles. Okay? So the narrator's telling us, like, think of something bigger than you can think of. Think of anything bigger than you've ever thought of before. Then Jonah speaks the most half-hearted, lazy summary of God's message that you could possibly think of in chapter 3, verse 4. And then later on in chapter 4, verse 2, Jonah admits the reason why he gave such a lazy sermon was because he did not want God to save them. So he phoned it in. He didn't try very hard. When I was growing up, my little brother would be asked to load the dishwasher in our family home, and he would intentionally load the dishwasher as poorly as you could possibly load a dishwasher under the hope 
that he would eventually stop being asked to load the dishwasher. Maybe you guys can relate to that. That's what Jonah does. Gives the worst sermon possible so that God will just let him off the hook, right? Chapter 3, verse 8, like this, these bloodthirsty Assyrians. Uh, it tells us in, in, in books like Amos of like the terrible things that they did to the Israelites. And these incredibly violent, wicked people hear the message from Jonah. They start crying, they start repenting, and they start apologizing to God. The Assyrian king cares more about obeying God than Jonah does, the Jewish prophet. And he declares that everybody in this enormous city must wear the clothing of grief and repentance. This seems to be exactly the response that God was hoping for. So he doesn't punish, he doesn't destroy the huge city. And if you heard this story growing up in Sunday school, that's probably the majority of what you know about the story of Jonah. That's where a lot of preachers and that's where a lot of teachers stop. But of course, there's a chapter 4. And it gives us incredibly uh, relevant interpretive details about what we're supposed to make about this story. So in chapter 4, in verse 1, Jonah sees God's mercy and he says that it brings him great displeasure. Think about that. He doesn't say, like, I'm displeased. He says, God, your mercy brings me great displeasure. He is angry. He is torn up at God's mercy. In chapter 4, verse 5, Jonah sits out on a desert hill waiting to see if God will change his mind. Like, God's already said he's not going to destroy Nineveh. And Jonah spends most of chapter 4 up on a hillside hoping that God will change his mind again and this time destroy the city. Chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, Jonah gets ridiculously emotional over the loss of his shade. He has this shady little spot that he's sitting. And when his shelter wilts, he cries out to God, in Jonah 4, 8, and 9 to kill him. That's pretty emo, right? Like, God, I've, I've had enough. Kill me. And he says it two different times. So the story ends with God asking Jonah the question. And this, like, this is a key interpretive part of the story. You can't just understand three-fourths of the story. You have to use all of it. And the story ends with God asking Jonah the question, is it, is it not reasonable that I love this great urban mass of people more than you love your comfort. Wow. And the discerning reader kind of chuckles to themselves and thinks, wow, Jonah did not get it. Jonah was an idiot. I can't believe Jonah loved his own comfort more than a mass of people. And then all of a sudden, you realize that the story has been crafted so that you then ask yourself the question, do you love your own comfort more than you love a mass of people? And so we process the story of Jonah in that light by asking, do I have the heart of Jonah or do I have the heart of God? Do you have the heart of Jonah or do you have the heart of God towards a mass of wicked, messy, dirty people? So let's move on. I, just, I, I was a literature major in college, so it's impossible for me to read a story without thinking about the specific choices that the narrator or the author uses. And so I just want to take a couple minutes to talk about how Jonah is different than any other story in the Bible 
If you're a literalist, don't feel threatened. I'm not trying to twist your arm or change your mind. I just want to give you background information that, that this is supposed to be something that we process completely differently than any other book of the Bible. And that's, like not, that's not just something that I am strongly opinionated about. I, just, I want to show you that like, that's coming from the story itself. So let's talk about satire. What is the definition of satire? The dictionary that I use said that satire is the use of humor or irony or exaggeration or ridicule to expose or criticize people's stupidity or vices. Okay, satire is the use of humor, irony, exaggerations, or ridicule to expose and criticize people's stupidity or vices. I think as you read the story this week, you're going to understand that uh, that's exactly what it's doing to Jonah. It's using humor, it's using exaggeration, and it's using ridicule to expose Jonah's wrongful attitudes. Probably the best use of satire that we have uh, in America is the TV show The Simpsons. And if you guys have ever watched The Simpsons, Homer Simpson has had a lot of different jobs. Homer Simpson has been a nuclear power plant technician, a boxer, a mascot, a minor league baseball player, a snowplow driver, an astronaut, a carnival worker, a fortune cookie writer, on a tiny little typewriter, and a monorail driver. And the list goes on and on. And no reasonable person has ever watched more than one or two episodes and said, I don't like the incongruency of somebody who's had so many different jobs. Because they understand it's satire. And he's taking on these exaggerated different professions to kind of to show us and, uh, the humor of the different situations and backgrounds that he finds himself in. So let me give you guys five quick examples from the book of Jonah why we can understand it as satire, as the technique being used. First one is the names. Did you guys know that in Hebrew, the name Jonah, the word Jonah also means dove? Let's think about that for a second. In the story of Noah's Ark, a dove travels across the ocean to bring a message of peace and hope. In the story of Jonah, Jonah, which means dove, is this guy who travels across the ocean to bring a reluctant, half-hearted message of impending destruction. It's satire. How about in the details? In Jonah 3.8, it tells us that uh, the Ninevites were so overtaken with repentance that even the livestock dressed in sackcloth. In ancient times, if you were just really grieving, you'd take off your normal clothes and you'd just put on like burlap, this really like rough fabric. You would just lay in the dirt and that would communicate to everybody else that you were just so distraught that you were grieving as you mourned in sackcloth, right? Do you guys really think that all the cows in Nineveh, a city the size of Los Angeles, were dressed in sackcloth as they lamented? I don't think that we really think that. I think it's satire. How about in uh, verse 211? The word, the Hebrew word that it uses to tell us about Jonah's exit from the sea creature is that the fish vomited him. Now the word vomit is never a pleasant word. Okay? Think about all the wedding toasts that you guys have heard over the years. People will say things like, 
And when I looked into the, the crinkle of your smile lines, I knew that I could grow old with you, you beautiful woman, I love you so much, right? No one ever says, the first time I heard you vomiting, I knew that I could be with you. Like, it's, it's always a word that brings with it indignity. It's always a word that brings with it grossness and unpleasantness. And that's exactly why it's used in the story of Jonah. In chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, it tells us about this plant that grows in one day higher than Jonah and then dies the next day. The only time I've ever seen a plant grow that fast is like in the Bugs Bunny Looney Tune cartoons, right? Or maybe in Super the Video Game Mario Brothers. Like, like plants don't really grow taller than your head and die in one day, but again... It's, the story's giving us clues that this is kind of souped up with satire. How about the patterns? All throughout the Old Testament, every time there's a prophet, the prophet bring, the same pattern always occurs. They bring a warning to people who are sinning. They bring an accusation of all the things that, are, that they're doing wrong. They talk about the punishment that's going to occur if, if the Israelites don't change their ways. And then they offer hope of the restoration that will come if Israel turns. That's the pattern that we see through all the multiple dozen books of the prophets in the Old Testament. Think of all the ways that Jonah breaks that pattern. He flees from having to give the message, and he refuses to play a part in bringing hope and restoration. Jonah's the anti-prophet. He's terrible. He's the opposite of what he's supposed to be. And how about the Gentiles? How about the non-Jewish people? Again, we're talking about breaking patterns in a way that's so over the top that it's cluing us into the fact that it's a little bit weird, okay? Jonah, the guy who is God's prophet, the person who's supposed to be an expert on understanding God, he repeatedly acts out a wrong understanding of what God wants him to do in every situation. He does the wrong thing when he's on the ship, and then the sailors who don't know anything about God, who don't know anything about Israel, they do the right thing, and they repent, and they offer a sacrifice, and they worship the God of Israel. What about the Assyrian king? There's nobody in the ancient world that you would expect to know less about God, but he repents, and he calls for a, a nation of fasting and repentance, while Jonah continues to not understand God. So you've got these flipped patterns that it's just another way of telling us this story is upside down. It's unlike anything else in the Bible. How about the setting? The story of Jonah happens in the most unexpected places in the entire Old Testament. If you break down kind of the timeline, half of the story happens inside of a sea creature, and, and the majority of the rest of the story happens in Assyria. It happens in Nineveh. The, uh, the Jewish scholar Robert Alter says this, um, to send a Hebrew prophet to Nineveh would be like sending a Jew to deliver a moral exhortation to Berlin in 1936. Okay? Like that's, that's what Jonah's asked to do. And so again, it's unexpected. It's not like any other story. And uh, my final example of the satire in the book of Jonah is the over-the-top response that the king and that the city has to Jonah. Like in, in Jonah 3.4... We hear what I call the, the, the Bible's worst sermon. After being inside the creature for three days, from being saved from the depths of the ocean, 
from having a lot of time to think about what he was going to say, this is Jonah's result. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Like that is the worst possible sermon that you could give, okay? It's, it's over-the-top surprisingly bad, but then contrast that with the over-the-top unexpected reaction of the Ninevites here in 3, 5 to 9. This is the response to that terrible, terrible sermon. The Ninevites believed God and a fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne and he tore off his royal robes. He covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. And this is the proclamation that he issued in Nineveh. By the degree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks eat anything. Don't let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent with compassion and turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Do you guys understand the humor and the worst sermon ever given and just this incredible revival that breaks out as a result? And that's just a couple of the ways why we're supposed to just look at this story a little bit differently than some of the others. But like we talked about in the introduction, even if it's not historical, even if it's not giving us times and dates, it doesn't mean that it doesn't play an important part in helping us understand who we're supposed to be as God's people. When you look at that mother's green coat that was cut up into the Kermit the Frog puppet, right? When you look at some of those, like the ruby red slippers that Dorothy used in The Wizard of Oz, like that helps understand who we are as Americans. Just like this whimsical story gives us insight into who we are as God's people. So let's wrap up here in section three with what I think are the two main themes of the book of Jonah. And I hope this stirs your heart like it stirs my heart. There's nothing in the Bible that's just supposed to give us information. There's nothing in the Bible that's only supposed to entertain us. God is communicating who he is to his people. And that's completely true in the book of Jonah. All right, to me, the main takeaway, the overwhelming theme of the book of Jonah is no matter how far or low Jonah sinks, God's grace is there. Let me talk to you about some of the details, some of the linguistic details in this story. And as I give these dozen or so examples, I want you to take note of how every single one of these examples has to do with going down, has to do with sinking, has to do with getting further away from the temple in Israel. It tells us in Jonah 1.3 that he paid his fare and he went down with the sailors. In Jonah 1.5 it says they cast the gear to lighten the load of the ship. And where does, where does all that cargo go? It sinks. In 1.5 it says Jonah went down into the far corners of the ship. In 1.10 it says and the sailors knew that he was fleeing from the Lord of Israel. In 112, Jonah says, Cast me down into the depths of the sea. And 114, it says, The sea was storming on them more and more. It's getting worse. 115, it says, They cast Jonah down into the sea. And 26, Jonah says, Water lapped around my neck. The deep came around me. The weeds were wrapped around my head. In Hebrew and in, in ancient uh, Far East poetry, 
They were, they were shepherds. They were agricultural people. They did a little bit of fishing, but even when they did fish, it was usually in lakes. It was in the, the Mediterranean. Like The ocean was the great unknown. To Hebrew people, the ocean is, might as well be outer space, especially under the water. In the book of Job, it says, uh, there's this one line that talks about how God is so great that he plays with the Leviathan as if it's his pet. And the Leviathan was the Canaanite god of the, of the wilderness, the Canaanite god of the unknown realms. And so Job says, our God is so great, he plays with the unknown God of the, of the unknown realms. And so at this point in 2.6, Jonah is down to the deepest, farthest thing that a Hebrew could even comprehend, and the weeds are wrapped around his neck. There's this great line in Jonah 2.7 where he says, to the roots of the mountain I sank down. Have you ever thought about the roots of a mountain? That's pretty, that's pretty deep. That's pretty low. But then it changes because in 2.7 it says, Jonah says, but you brought me out of that pit. And in 2.10 he says, rescue is the Lord's. So the main theme of the book of Jonah is that Jonah sinks far and Jonah sinks deep. But no matter how far he gets from Israel, no matter how disobedient he gets to God, God's mercy is still there. So I'd like you guys to just take a moment and think is there might be something in your life that is the lowest you've ever sank. There might be some sort of sin or self-defeating habit that you just can't shake and it devastates you. Maybe there's something that God has delivered you from, but you have great shame over it in your past. The reason why the story of Jonah is in the Bible is not to entertain us, even though it's entertaining. The story of Jonah is in the Bible to affirm to us that there's no depth that we can sink to, that God's grace doesn't abound. I've been to a lot of like really spiritual buildings. I went to seminary in Chicago and there was these classrooms that 100 year of students, 100 year of seminary students studied in to become pastors. I've traveled through some of the oldest and most beautiful mosques and churches throughout Europe. Really beautiful and peaceful places. But the most spiritually stirring building that I've ever been in is the Milwaukee Rescue Mission. It used to be this public high school. It's an entire city block, and I worked there and lived in it for two years. And now it brings gospel hope to really trapped people. The Milwaukee Rescue Mission is filled with residents at any given time. There might be three or four hundred people that are in its various programs, and these people are alcoholics and drug dealers and prostitutes and felons. I was eating one day with this guy who told me that he checked himself in after selling all of his child's birthday presents so he could take the money and go out and get high and at nighttime, I would go into the gym and I would just shoot, ba- shoot baskets for like two hours or three hours. And I would just pray for all the lives that were being changed. And the reason that building was so spiritually stirring to me was because it was not a monument to what God had done in the past. It wasn't just architecture that, that God had inspired within somebody. It was the place where God's grace was actively changing people. That's what the story of Jonah is all about.
It stirs us with the reminder that there's no depths that a person can sink to where God's mercy and grace can't find them and change them and and send them back on track with the purpose that God has always created us to have. It's a beautiful, beautiful message and theme. And the second theme that I think overwhelms us from the book of Jonah, and we'll wrap up with this, might hit a little bit close to home for some of us, and if it does, that's the whole beauty and efficiency of the story of Jonah. The second theme of the book of Jonah is this. We love plants and pets and our own pride more than we love people, and this is wrong. The second message of the book of Jonah is that we love plants and pets and our own pride more than we love people, and this is wrong. In chapter 4, Jonah sits on the hillside and his shade wilts, and that's his breaking point. He's like, God, how could you kill that beautiful plant? I love that plant so much. And it's comical because we're not supposed to love a plant more than we love a city of 200,000 people. But you know what? I can relate to that so much. Because when I hike the Hummocks Trail, or when I hike the Uplands Trail, and I get up to the parts where you can look over all of Big Sky, I think a couple things. And maybe you guys can relate to this. I think, man, the mountains are so beautiful. I think, man... The trees and the birds and the sunlight and the snow, it's all so beautiful. And then I look down at the traffic and the buildings and the people, and I'm like, why are you ruining Big Sky? Those, that traffic is probably people that are out of state. Half of those homes are probably owned by people that don't even live here. And then I can't afford a house here. And that car that's broken down, it's probably a dirt bag. It's probably smoking a joint right now, right? Like, and when we think those things, like we have the heart of Jonah. When we look down on our community and we love nature, we love the mountain, and we love the sunshine, and we hate the people, we have the heart of Jonah, and that's wrong. And when we go home and we put a sweater on our dog, that's wrong too, okay? Like, when we... When we love our possessions and our pets and our plants more than we love people, we've, we've got to remind ourselves that the story of Jonah offers a corrective to that. Maybe you at times have the heart of Jonah. I used to think that Jonah ended ambiguously because God says to Jonah at the end, like, is it wrong for you to love plants more than I love this mass of humanity? And then the story ends. And my whole life up till this afternoon, I thought, we'll never know if Jonah reforms. We'll never know if Jonah learned his lesson. And then as I was reading through a sermon by Tim Keller, he came up with this conclusion, how could we possibly know anything about the story of Jonah unless Jonah was the one who told it to us? And if Jonah told it to us, does it make sense why it uses satire so much to make Jonah look like such... A goof. So listen to this quote. How do we know all this stuff about Jonah? How do we know Jonah was such an idiot? How do we know he was such a racist? How do we know he made that unbelievably stupid I hate the love of God speech in the beginning of chapter 4? The only possible way we could know is if Jonah is the one that told us. The only possible way we could know is if Jonah is the author. What kind of man would let the world know what an ass he has been except someone who is finally joyfully 
secure in God's love, someone who finally grasps the gospel. That's the only way we could know any of this stuff. And if God can change Jonah, he can change me. He can change you. Love the city. Love people. What a great conclusion. I'd like to invite the worship team to come forward and uh, wrap up our service with a song or two. And as they do, let me, let me offer this conclusion and summary statement. I think the story of Jonah actually happened, at least on some level. Jesus talks about it in the Gospels as if it has veracity, as if there's parts of it that are true. But I think the most plausible way we can understand why satire is being used to the degree that it is is because Jonah is dialing up the satire to really play on the repulsiveness of how wrong his attitude was. I think Jonah learned the error of his ways, and I think his love for people changed as a result. So I invite you guys to come back for the next three weeks as we continue to study how this strange story points us to the beautiful heart of God and how we need to live with that heart as well.